Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, my guest is the footballing legend, Matt Letizier. In our conversation, we talked about his origins on Guernsey, how he came to be a professional footballer, what he thinks about lockdown and media conformity, and also the importance of being able to debate. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thanks very much for joining me, Matt. Ah, my pleasure. I want to ask you about your background, growing up on Guernsey, uh, starting playing football at a very young age. Of course, every young boy wants to be a big football star. But did you have just a natural aptitude for it? Uh, I, I did. I kind of, I had three older brothers who were, who were all pretty good at football. Um, and they were like four, five and six years older than me. Uh, and so I grew up in a, in a household that was obsessed with sport. Right. So um, when I first started playing football, you know, I joined in with my brothers. And obviously, when you're playing with, with kids who are bigger and older than you, uh, it's hard and you have to try and find a way. But I managed to, to find a way to be able to play with them and their mates and not look out of place, even though I was so much younger than everyone. So at that point, you know, I was kind of maybe seven or eight years of age. Um, and, I, and I was thinking, blimey, I'm I don't think I'm quite good at this. <laughs> uh, and then I, I played in a in a tournament for my school, which was an under-11s tournament. I think I was eight at the time. Um, and it was kind of unheard of for an eight-year-old to be playing in the in the school football team, which was under-11s. And it was a seven-a-side tournament. And I got picked to play in it, and we ended up getting to the final. We won the final 2-1, and I scored both the goals in the final uh, against all these big boys. So I was like, at that point, I was like, four. <laughs> I really like this game and I think I'm quite good at it. I'd love to be able to be a footballer. And from about that point, the age of eight, I was obsessed with becoming a professional footballer. And how did your family feel about that? Because it's one of those things where, as a career, it's almost like <laughs> saying I want to be a, an actor or something like that. Parents get nervous. Um, my parents weren't nervous at all, actually. Uh, they were they were incredibly encouraging. Um, they would probably have preferred it if I would have perhaps applied myself a little bit better at school. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I... I, I I did enough at school to get by, um, but I kind of had the mindset that I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a footballer, so I don't really need to try that hard at school because that's not gonna have any effect on what my job's gonna be. Uh, I was so obsessed with it. So I, I was fairly bright at school and I, and I got by by just doing the bare minimum, really. And it is one of those careers where it is a vocation, isn't it? You have to have that obsession, don't you? You have to be incredibly determined. Uh, you have to have uh, a real, I think you have to have a real passion for it. Yeah. Um, you know, to be, to be really good at something, I think you need to be passionate about it. And, and what the, just can you talk me through how you got from there for sort of playing as a young person into the professional realm? How, 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 so, how does that happen? Um, well, first of all, um, as I mentioned, my brothers were all pretty good at football and two of them had opportunities to become footballers uh, and both of them turned it down because they got homesick and didn't want to leave Guernsey. So um, I think my parents saw this and, and I think they were um, perhaps a little bit disappointed that they, that, you know, Kevin and Carl, my, my two most talented brothers, who I, <laughs> people have always said, you know, they, they will tell everybody that they were more talented than me. Um, Obviously, I disagree with that slightly, <laughs> but what I would say is that I, I felt like they were equally as talented as I was. Um, and I think had we been brought up on the mainland, I think we would, all four of us, would probably have ended up being footballers because uh, you wouldn't have had the homesick thing to cope with. Um, so from an early age, my parents, um, to stop me from being like that, they would send me away to soccer schools for a week at a time uh, without them. So I'd go with a friend and my friend's dad. And they just wanted me to get used to being away from home without my family around me to kind of prepare me for, you know, if I did get that chance, I'd be, I'd be ready for it. It wouldn't be so daunting 
for me. Uh, and so my brother Kevin had a chance to go to Oxford through a, a friend of my dad's. Uh, he turned that down and then I actually went to Oxford and I went to stay with my dad's friend. Uh, I left my school in Guernsey. I think I was 14 at the time. Uh, I moved schools to Oxford uh, with the uh, idea that I would finish my school in Oxford. And at weekends and in the evenings, I trained with the, with the guys at Oxford United. Um, that didn't last very long because <laughs> I got really homesick. Right. <laughs> uh, and Even with that preparation you, you it, had? It, well, I think it was, it was probably more to do that maybe had a little bit to do with it but perhaps more to do with how i was treated when i went to this new school in oxford where uh, i literally was doing lessons that i'd never done before mm. uh, and literally nobody in the school spoke to me um, okay. and it was a really lonely experience the first day i went there literally nobody spoke to me he, hardly even the teachers hardly spoke to me and why was that did they see you as an outsider or? Uh, i have i have no idea it's an anti-guernsey uh, thing I mean, <laughs> who knows um I mean, it was just a, i was just a strange i was quite a quiet kid you know um uh, and so that, after that first day i was like oh jeez this is this is awful uh so i thought well I'll, I'll go back the next day surely it will get better somebody yeah. will speak to me and you know things will and i went back the second day and exactly the same thing happened uh and i and i went back um to my dad's friend's house keith rogers um and his wife jill and i went back and i said i can't do this i'm sorry i can't do this i need to go back um so i went back but i also uh knew at that point that um, Southampton were interested in me so they'd seen me playing in a, in a game for Guernsey under 15s uh, and I'd been invited over to Southampton for a trial so I went back to Guernsey uh, I had a trial at Southampton um, I, I was there for a week as a um, in the half-term holidays and after that first week they said right we, we want to sign you as a, an associate schoolboy um, so I, I signed as a schoolboy and the good thing was Southampton actually then said look we, we want you to finish your schooling in Guernsey you yeah. just come and train with us in the holidays and we'll take it from there. And then when you've finished your schooling, we make a decision as to whether or not you're going to be one of the guys that um, we're going to take on as an apprentice or the YTS scheme as it was back then, the youth training scheme. Uh, and out of all the schoolboys that they had in, in my year, I'm not sure how many it was, probably 40 or 50 guys, uh, they chose nine players to, mm. to go on the YTS scheme. And I suppose once you're in that system, the talent will out, won't it? They'll spot. Uh, you'd like to think so. And I think Salampton have been... Um, particularly good at, at spotting decent footballers down the years. Uh, you know, they've made a lot of money through their academy by spotting players at a young age who, who they can see the talent there. Um, uh, and so, yeah, as, as when I was in that system, uh, I got I got my letter from Southampton Football Club at, in May 1985, uh, and it just said, um, you know, we'd like to offer you a place on our um, youth training scheme, uh, and you start on July the first. And I was like, wow. That's it. This is it. This is my first step. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that was a, an incredibly exciting time for me. Um, really looked forward to, you know, just doing something that I was good at and something that I loved and just doing that every day for my job. Well, that's it. Isn't it? it Most people amazing. don't have that in their jobs, in their careers. They don't go to work and love the thing that they do. Absolutely. I mean, it's enviable. Absolutely. I, I, I've always said, I think if you wake up every day and you, and you go to work and you're getting paid for something that you love doing, then yeah. I think you're winning at life. Absolutely. And how, how did your family feel about it? Was, was it, I mean, your brothers had also wanted to be footballers. Was there any kind of... Um, there was, well, there was never any resentment. I think they've, they've always shown nothing but, but pride in what mm. I've done uh, in my career. Um, 
actually my, my brother Carl, um, who was the other one who was equally as talented as me, um, he had a chance to join Southampton before me and, and rejected it, that the chance to be an apprentice. Um, and after I started at Southampton, uh, he actually he came back to Southampton for another trial mm. um, uh, and had a trial at Southampton while I was there uh, and very nearly, very nearly, you know, made Chris Nichols sign him. But it was uh, Chris decided that it was that Carl was no better than what we already had, right. um, which uh, I think I was a little bit biased, but I thought he was better than what we had. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he he obviously did regret a little bit. I think that that first decision to not because he came back and had another go at it. Yeah, uh, and he gave it a great go, and it just didn't work out for him. But um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get in that system early, and uh, things went very well for me early on at Southampton. Started scoring a lot of goals in the youth team very quickly, uh, and my reputation kind of grew um, pretty quickly. And you famously stayed at Southampton throughout your career, uh, and you know, you had other offers. Uh, there were, uh, I believe, Chelsea, there was an offer. Uh, there was an offer from Chelsea, there was an offer from uh, Spurs. Um, Liverpool were also uh, interested, so my, my agent told me back in the day. Um, Spurs was obviously the one that I was probably the most interested in because that was my team as a boy. You know, I was a, I was a big Spurs fan. My, my dad was a, a Spurs fan, still is. Um, and, and so that was quite tempting. And Spurs were the only club that I actually ever spoke to. So I had a... I had an illicit meeting in North oh, London, which shouldn't have really happened. So was uh, it just loyal, sheer loyalty? or was, I mean, these must have been uh, lucrative offers. So they were different. Well, actually, back in 1990, the, the difference in what Spurs were actually offering me wasn't a huge amount different to what I actually okay. ended up signing a new contract at Southampton. And, and you know, it, was, it wasn't much different at all. Um, so the, the discrepancy wasn't there with that situation. It probably would have been with the Liverpool situation and it definitely would have been with the Chelsea situation in 1995. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so the, the, the Chelsea one was an interesting one because, um, well, actually Spurs and Chelsea were both interesting because the Spurs manager at the time was Terry Venables. Uh, and when I, because I'd agreed to join Spurs, I, I agreed terms on a contract, I'd gone a long way down the line mm. and I changed my mind. Um, uh, and... When I changed my mind, my agent rang me up and he said, Terry Venables would like to speak to you. I hadn't spoken to him at all. So I'd spoken to representatives of Spurs, but not to Terry. Um, and uh, my agent said, Terry wants to speak to you. And, and I said, well, I've made up my mind. I don't want to speak to him. And that was it. Okay. So, uh, so obviously then Terry went on to become England manager um, a, a few years later. Uh, and then in 1995, when Chelsea tried to buy me, Glenn Hoddle was the manager of Chelsea. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened. Well, not, not the same thing happened. I didn't really speak to Chelsea. I, I said to my age, I'm, I'm not interested. I'm happy where I was. I was. Loving my football at Southampton. Very happy. And, you know, so I, I had no interest in moving. And um, so my age went back to Chelsea and went, Matt doesn't want to move. Uh, and then Glenn Hoddle came up to my age and said, well, can I speak to him? Now, bear in mind, Glenn Hoddle was my hero as a mm. kid. You know, he was the reason. He's the guy that I tried to copy when I played yeah. football. Um, and my agent rang me back and he said, uh, See, I know you said you don't want to go, but Glenn Hoddle wants to speak to you. And I went, well, I've made up my mind, so I don't, I don't want to speak to him. Um, that must have been difficult. That was difficult. It was really <laughs> difficult. Um, but, you know, I was quite, you know, strong-headed. And, uh, and I just thought, you know, I've made my mind up. What's the point? Yeah. Um, and then obviously Glenn Hoddle then went on to become the next England manager. Uh, so I kind of probably upset the two guys that probably had the most <laughs> influence on my England career when I was at the, the peak of my power. So, but the Chelsea, the Chelsea one was interesting because um, 
Although Glenn was the manager, I think the guy that really wanted me at Chelsea was Matthew Harding. Mm. I don't know if you remember Matthew, but he, he um, sadly passed away in a helicopter crash about a year after this incident. Um, and he'd rung Laurie McMenemy, who was director of football at Southampton. And uh, Laurie, Laurie has passed this story on to me. And he said he, he rang Laurie and he said, uh, I want to buy Matt Petitian. And uh, Laurie said, well, we don't want to sell him. And I know the lad's happy here. He doesn't want to go anywhere. So uh, he said, so it, it's no deal. Uh, and Laurie said, in fact, he said, the only way Matt Letitia will ever be your player is if you buy Southampton Football Club. Right. So Matthew Harding turned around to Laurie and he went, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, maybe I could, I could buy them and change their name to Chelsea on Sea. <laughs> right? So that's how the conversation ended. And Laurie thought nothing more of it. And then a couple of days later, uh, in the post, Laurie received a cheque. Uh, and the cheque was made out to Chelsea on Sea. Seven million pounds, which in 1995 was a lot of money, <laughs> signed by Matthew Harding. And, uh, and so Laurie has kept this check all this time and he, and he had it, put it in a little frame. Uh, and a couple of years ago, he actually, uh, he actually came and said, oh, he said, this was about you. He said, you, you should have this. So I have a check <laughs> in my office for seven million Fantastic. quid. I can't tell you how frustrating it is to look at that every day and not be able to cash it. You can't cash it. <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of your career at, at Southampton, I mean, football's the kind of thing where there are so, must be so many highs. There must be so many incredible things. Were there any particular highlights for you? Um, well, obviously, um, at, in my time at Southampton, we never won any major trophies. So, so you know, in terms of that kind of a high, yeah. um, I, I never got to experience that. Um, but there were, there were moments of, of sheer relation, sheer joy, you know, in... The first one that I can obviously my, my debut is a huge thing, so I make my debut against Spurs. Uh -huh. Ironically, my full debut, uh, I came on a sub against Norwich, uh, and then my first start was against Spurs. Mm. Um, we beat them two nil. About twenty three of my family came across to watch the game, <laughs> uh, and that was just an incredible night to know that I've now, you know, I've, I've made my full debut in the first division as it was back then. You know, I'm playing against the team that I supported as boy. Glenn Hoddle was playing for Spurs that night. Right. All these things. So everything's coming like, together. I yeah. was just like, wow, that's amazing. So that was a, that was a great start. Um, you know, and, and then you go on to my first goals for Southampton, which came uh, against Manchester United in a League Cup tie, uh, which um, coincidentally, I think Manchester United fans have got a lot to thank me for. Mm. Uh, they probably don't realise it, but... Um, my first two goals for Southampton came in a 4-1 win against Manchester United. Uh, and that defeat for Manchester United resulted in Ron Atkinson getting the sack. Right. And then appointing Sir Alex Ferguson. So, you know, I had a little bit to do with the appointment of Sir Alex <laughs> Ferguson in a funny way. Uh, so that was my first goals for Southampton were, were amazing. Um, and then we had stuff like Liverpool came to the Dell in 1989. They were the best team in the country. They were unbeaten. We played them at the end of October. Uh, and we absolutely smashed them. I mean, it was 4-1, but it, it could have been 8 or 9 yeah. comfortably. It was one of those games where every one of our players just had the, the most, like 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10 performances. Every yeah. one on the pitch. It didn't happen very often, certainly not in, in my teams. Um, and, and that was an amazing feeling, to beat a team who were that good. Yeah. And not just beat them, but, you know, absolutely smashed them to pieces that day. So that was a pretty special feeling. Um, I, we had moments where you know we were staring relegation in the face. We managed to get ourselves out of it, and yeah. uh, at, at times where the odds were stacked against us, um, so they were satisfying moments. Um, uh, I, I scored a goal at Wembley, which you know, as a kid, 
That, that was it. I mean, dream. Uh, it didn't matter that it was in the Zenith Data Systems Cup final. <laughs> <laughs> um, I scored at Wembley, and you know, that was just well, a, an amazing moment for me. And then, obviously, putting on a, walking out on Wembley and yeah. you know representing England for the first time uh, when I came on as a substitute against Denmark was just just the the culmination of everything that I wanted to do as an eight-year-old boy when I wanted to be a professional footballer and I wanted to play for England. Yeah. Those are my two ambitions in life. And at the age of 25, uh, I, I finally managed to, to do that second one and, and that was just an incredible feeling. It's, it's just a, a fascinating life story because, I mean, when you become a professional footballer, it's not just those sort of struggles that you're talking about in terms of winning the games. You have all these people following your every move they're depending on you. You'll become like a hero figure. I mean, that must be... How does that work with it? You know, you must go to your head a bit. Um, I think I think it has the potential to go to your head. Uh, I'd like to think that um, because of my upbringing, uh, because of my grounding, um, I never... I don't think I ever let it go to my head. Yeah. I wasn't the sort of person that I was. Um, I was always very... I was always tried to be very humble. Uh, and I was always very respectful of my teammates mm. um, because a lot of the time when you're the guy that's scoring the goals and you're the guy setting up the goals, you're the guy that gets all the headlines when things are going great. Yeah. Uh, you know, people tend to forget that actually I couldn't I couldn't do those things if I didn't have yeah. those guys doing all the stuff on a full pitch that I was rubbish at. Yes. You know, so I can't defend, I can't tackle. You know, I, that just wasn't my strengths. So I needed people to do that for me and feed me the ball to be able to do the stuff that I could do. Um, so I was always very respectful of my teammates for what they did for me. Yeah. Uh, and always tried to um, make sure that even though I was the one getting the headlines, uh, a lot of the times that I was always, when I spoke in the media, I was always making sure that, you know, this isn't, this isn't a one-man team. Yeah. You know, this is a team effort. Yeah. Um, and I think that has to be put out there sometimes. Absolutely. How important is it? I mean, I'm speaking as a complete outsider because I'm hopeless at sports, um, <laughs> apart from Batgammon, um, which doesn't really oh, count. Oh, I love Batgammon. Yeah, it's great fun. Good, um, good game. Good game. <laughs> but, you know, how important is that team mentality? How important is it, for instance, that the team get on off the pitch? Ah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't think it's actually that important that the team get on off the pitch. Okay. Um, it might help a little bit, but as long as you get on on the pitch... Um, then kind of what happens off of it really doesn't, it's kind of irrelevant. Really? Uh, because I think some of the best partnerships um, that you'll find, um, the, the players involved actually didn't really get on very well and weren't best of mates. That's really surprising because yeah. you, you see the way, you know, when a goal is called and everyone hugs each other and you see this, this sense of camaraderie. But, that, but that's, that's the thing. That's when you all come together. Uh, so, uh, you know, from like an hour, hour and a half before kickoff, when you're in that changing room together, you are part of a team. You are as one. Right. Uh, and so when you cross that white line, you you will need to do whatever you need to do to fight with your teammates in that team. Uh, and for that 90 minutes, that's the most important bit. And when the final whistle goes, uh, you know, there's still a bit of that in the changing room afterwards because you're all on a bit of a high. And, yeah. You know, um, but when you... When it all set, when the dust settles and you, you go back to training on a Monday morning uh, and everything's calmed down, um, you still get guys in the change room that, that don't really like each other, don't right. speak to each other that much. But they don't, it, it's not something that they allow to interfere with the team ethic when it comes to yeah. stepping over the white line, stepping onto the training pitch. I mean, I've seen fights 
proper scraps. Actual fights. Actual fist, fisty cuffs on training grounds with, with guys that you thought, blimey, I thought, I thought they'd gone. Yeah, that's really <laughs> and, and then uh, And then it's like it could be the most innocuous thing, like a tackle that's just a bit late and, and somebody loses their temper and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, they're having a scrap. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then like 24 hours later, they're hugging each other just as they're about to go on a pitch and fight with each other, like on the same team. Yes. It's just a, it's, it's a strange thing about football, but I, I don't think you necessarily have to all get on great as mates to be a great team. And then what about the relationship with the fans? I mean, I hear uh, sports people talking all the time about how the input from the fans, the noise, the atmosphere, all of that actually does have a psychological impact. A hundred percent. And I think, and I think you can see that um, just by the way that, Teams' performances are often, not always, because sometimes it can go the other way if the crowd are not supportive. Mm. Um, but often there are moments where a crowd can lift a team in a moment just with their support, with their vocal support, they can, the, the energy that they can produce. Mm. Um, and it does feel like when you're playing at home, uh, and it's difficult to quantify it, mm. um, but you can only talk from your experience. At times at home, you felt like you had more energy in you than what you would have away from home where 95% of the, of the crowd don't want you to win. So in a sense, the crowd are part of the game. Absolutely, they're part of the game. Absolutely. Are. And I think uh, the crowds that realise that are really useful to their team. I think sometimes they... They can forget how useful they can be for their team. Uh, and when the negativity starts, that also can have an effect the other way. Right. So I've seen a crowd destroy a player's confidence because they start moaning at him because he misplaced a couple of passes. Whereas if they knew the effect that that had on him, they would, they would be more positive towards that player because with, a, with positivity behind him, he's not going to make those, those mistakes again. When you start jumping on somebody because... They've made a couple of mistakes. Mm. All it's going to do is make them more anxious and make them make more mistakes. Yeah, so course. it's completely counter to what they're trying to. But I suppose they're, they're not thinking do. rationally. That, that, that that's the, exactly the right. The crowd is just and reacting. That, they are. That, that's exactly right. They are reacting. And I think that you, you also. I also noticed um, certainly in the seasons where we were fighting relegation, is that towards the end of the season when you know. The, the, uh, the the situation was quite tense. Mm. You know, we needed points, we needed wins, we could get relegated. In those situations, you would found, find that the crowd were much more positive right. towards you. Because than, there was a lot at stake. Because there was a lot more at stake than yeah. perhaps there were in the first few months of the season where it was just kind of a bit of, ah, oh, well, we've lost a game, there's loads more. There's yeah. loads more games we can do to recover that. When it got to that business end of the season, they seemed to be more with the team, yeah, uh, and it made a difference. Well, it's 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 a unique thing, isn't it? Because they are people are so invested in the, the teams they support. When they the teams Absolutely. lose, they they go down. You know, I've had friends who have had days of depression because their team have lost. You know, it has this real it, effect. It does have a real effect. You know, people are passionate about their about their football teams. Yeah, that's what makes the game so popular, not just in this country, but but worldwide. Yeah, um, and you know, that's why that's why I still love it to this day. I still watch loads of it. And, well, they still seem, play. And there seems to be more of a passion with football, a unique kind of passion, which you don't necessarily get in other sports. It, yeah, it's quite, it's quite tribal. Um, yes. Uh, and, and I think in, yeah, in other sports, it's, there's not quite the intensity there. Although, you know, you could love your rugby team or your cricket team. Um, there's not quite the, uh, almost the, the angst and the animosity that goes along with it. Yes. Um, and sometimes, obviously, that, that goes a little bit too far. 
Well, that's the uh, downside, isn't and it? And that's the downside, yeah. yeah. So it's it's kind of getting that balance right where you're passionate about your team, but you know you, you know where you have to draw the line when it comes to you know, of course. your behaviour. And you ended up moving into broadcasting, of course, and commentary and that kind of thing. And, and was this just a natural evolution for you? Um, I don't know if it was it was natural. I was never um, I was never shy about doing interviews. I was I was always quite comfortable for somebody to to stick a camera in my face after a, after a match and talk about the game. Yes. Um, so I didn't mind that, but I had no great ambition um, after I finished playing to to go into broadcasting. Um, I mean, my ambition actually when I finished playing football was just to play golf every day. I mean, it was, right, okay. it was that yeah. simple. But obviously, Southampton didn't quite pay me enough to be able to put me in a position where I where yeah. I could do that. I mean, I I, I was okay. I, I could pick and choose what I wanted to do, but I, I, you know, I couldn't not work for the rest of my life. Right. I didn't earn that kind of money. Yeah. Um, so I had a couple of years where I was just yeah, playing a lot of golf and uh, doing little bits of work in the media uh, and just kind of testing the water, really. Mm. Um, uh, and then in 2005, um, after I'd been doing a, a little bit of uh, work for Soccer Saturday, I'd just been kind of filling in for guys that were on holiday and stuff. Um, a spot became available on the panel and I was the, the right man in the right place. And they asked me if I'd this go and do it Sky, every week. This it? was for Sky on yeah. the Soccer Saturday show. Um, uh, Rodney Marsh had just been sacked. Uh, I think Rodney had made an inappropriate joke uh, on the live on, on one of the Sky programs right. uh, and was uh, immediately sacked. So they had a, a space spare on the panel and they asked me if I would fancy go and do it every week. So, when, so I did. When you, were a fo- when you were a player and you heard commentators and the way they analyse the game and do a sort of post-mortem, of the, is there ever any sense of, that's really annoying because, uh, you know, it's, it's easier to talk about than to actually do? Or do you think there's any, ever any time when it's actually useful to hear that kind of feedback? Um, no, I think, it, I think it can be useful. I think... Um, when you've got guys with with good knowledge of the game, um, you know, and so, some guys have have strengths in areas that that others don't. Mm-hmm. So, from from my point of view, I always used to watch uh, football as a as a fan, yeah. and I used to try to relate what I was seeing, and I would relate it in a way that that fans could understand. Mm. So, uh, and but some people are, are, are much more technically based and, and they will study the formations of the team yeah. and the tactics that are going on in the game. Um, uh, and that's a, that's a slightly different side of the story. And I was never interested in that side of the game because coaching and all that kind of stuff was never my thing. Yeah, that feels more like criticism of the manager. of the you know. It, it can be. Yeah. It, it can be, if, depending on how they, uh, how they word it. Yeah. So, so I tended to, to just give my opinion on the game uh, and try and keep it in a way that the the everyday fan could understand it and, and try to speak as they would speak yes. if they were watching the game. And that yeah. was my style. Yeah, I think that's the appeal of it, isn't it? When people hear people talk about the game in the way that they would. Yeah, they would. No, I think it, I think it's it's useful uh, because you have to you understand who your audience are. Yes, um, and you don't want to lose them by by being too technical and talking about stuff that they're not that interested in. And of course. Um, that ended 2020, wasn't it, with, with Sky? Yes. It was a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Um, and there appears to be some ambiguity about why that, that happened. Some people have said it's, you know, there were too many white men on the panel. Uh, or was it a sense in which you were being too outspoken about other, other things? Um, I, I think it was probably, probably a combination of the two, okay. um, I, I, would, I would guess. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think with the, with the way that um, 
the company have gone uh, in terms of their, their diversity and all that kind of stuff. I think it was pretty a, a pretty bad look for them to yes. have uh, a, a very popular Saturday afternoon show with, with five middle-aged, I might be being generous with middle-aged, but five middle-aged <laughs> white blokes on there. So, uh, and, you know, I... I listen. I'm all for proportional representation on the on the television. I think it's right that that television should be a reflection of what we see in society. But then some people have said because of your views on lockdown, for instance, that that has had an impact or anything. But but you know, and this seems to be a broad thing in not just in football or in TV or in the media is that this idea that people shouldn't express an opinion that is that is outside a certain limit of acceptability, shall we say? <laughs> uh, and I think that's particularly the case in broadcast media. Yeah, um, it, it has been. Um, it's been uh, something that I've had to put up with for the last couple of years because I've, I've questioned um, certain decisions that have been made. Um, uh, I think given, given a chance to do it all again, mm. uh, would I do the same? Yeah, if I, even with the consequences, I'd do the same again because I feel it's the right thing to do. Um, I, I was very concerned that we were only being given one side of the story. Um, this is about the lockdown. You with lo- with well, <laughs> uh, with with everything really. <laughs> uh, lockdowns, uh, vaccines, um, war reporting. Uh, I think, I think it worries me when you're just given uh, one side of the story yes. and the other side is just completely ignored, censored banned from social media for having a slightly different opinion. I'm of the opinion that we should be able to debate openly all sorts of topics, um, and we haven't been able to do that uh, for the last couple of years, uh, and that's concerned me greatly. Um, I'm I'm very much uh, in favour of open and honest debate, um, and I don't think... I think individuals should be able to hear both sides of the story Mm. and then make up their own mind what they think, whereas the last couple of years, all we've had is phew, one side of the story, bang, you're just getting that, COVID, 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 the whole time, all fear, a lot of fear-mongering in the, in the media. Uh, and I don't think it was good for people's mental health, yeah. quite frankly. Uh, and I think we're seeing that in, in what's happened with children uh, and the, the mental health problems that, that, that has risen considerably. Um, uh, and I think we went about things in the wrong way. And I was uh, vocal about it. Uh, I was criticised for that, and that's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Yeah. If they want to criticise me, no problem at all. Um, but I just felt like only one side of the story was being given, and, I, and I, I'm passionate. I think it's probably the Libra in me which, <laughs> which likes uh, the balance and the fairness okay. in life. Yeah. Uh, and I want everybody to be able to see that there is another side to the narrative um, that might just be a better way to go about things. And why can't we sit and talk about it and have a debate uh, and then make up our minds after that? But we were never given that opportunity and that, that concerned me. Because this feels like a relatively, I know this has always been the case to a degree, but it feels like it's been ramped up to the point where people have a view that is unfashionable, say. And other people, rather than say, oh, I disagree with that, I hate that view and this is why, They'll say, I, I think we should silence that view. I yeah, you know, absolutely. That feels like a development that's relatively recent. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think um, the social media, the big social media platforms have, have um, been one of the big reasons for that. Um, uh, I think the, uh, the idea of freedom of speech seems to scare a lot of people um, because they don't want their 
orthodoxy to be challenged. They don't want their opinions to be challenged in any way, shape or form. Uh, and that's not the way we progress as a society, in my opinion. Yeah. So um, uh, I don't think that's the, the right way for our, for our society to go. And I think this has had an impact on football. And it did, I think, particularly with the, the BLM movement and where all of a sudden um, uh, players were taking the knee, uh, wearing the sort of symbols. And some people were raising the point that, that because everyone agrees that Black Lives Matter, the concept, obviously, Absolutely. and everyone agrees that racism, there's, there's no place for racism in a civilized Absolutely. society. But there was the other aims of the movement that I think were being overshadowed. And I think you'd mentioned this as well. Yeah, um, I did. I, it, I, it certainly deserved a conversation, I suppose. Is what yeah, it, it did. I just thought they could have done things in a better way. Um, so I'd kind of read up a little bit about the, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and what they stood for mm. uh, and what they wanted to do. And I just felt like to, for the Premier League to align themselves with those three particular words, uh, I, I thought were, was the wrong thing to do at that time mm. because of everything else that they stood for. I thought there could have been a better choice of how we fight racism. Uh, there have been other campaigns to kick absolutely. racism out. Absolutely. You know, kick racism out has, has, has been going for a long time. Um, and uh, that's why I, I decided because they, when I when I went went into work one day, um, just before we were about to go on air, mm. uh, our producer came in and, and handed everyone a badge. And it and it was the Black Lives Matter badge, uh, and I was really uncomfortable with this, um, and and I said to him, I said, "Do I have to wear this badge?" Uh, and he looked at me and he went. It's probably in your best interest if you do. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. Now this is like 60 seconds before we're about to go on air. So I was like, what? So, so anyway, I, we all put the badges on. Uh, but it, it really bothered me throughout the show. And at the end of the show, I, I went to the producer and I said, look, I said, I, I'm not comfortable wearing, wearing that badge. Mm. So I, I understand what that movement is and what they stand for. I don't agree with that. Uh, I'm quite happy to wear the kick racism out badge every time you want me to wear it on the television i'm quite happy to do that i'm in no way uh, uh, a racist uh, and i i mean who who doesn't agree i mean yes there'll, there'll always be a minority of, of people who, who are racist um, but i think the huge majority of people in this country are not racist people uh, well i mean football fans overwhelmingly have supported the kick racism, racism absolutely, out campaign absolutely. You know. absolutely and there's never been any problem with that so, but then it came to the point with, with Black Lives Matter because it, it felt like a political movement that had other goals, defunding police, yes. dismantling uh, heteronormativity, the nuclear family, etc. that kind of thing, which was all, all on the website. It was all there Absolutely. to be seen. Absolutely. So, you know. um, but then the reaction from some fans to the taking the knee when they were booing, for instance, and that kind of thing. Yep. How did you feel when a lot of commentators just said, if they're booing, they're racist? That's what they're doing. Do you think that's right? Do you think there's an element of that? No, no, I don't think that's right. I think that uh, I think that was um, a term that's now been bandied about to try and stifle any kind of debate. Um, just because you know they booed because of what it represented, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. I think there was, and that's why I say they should have used a different slogan, yes. uh, a different way uh, to that was that was such a. Uh, a coincidence that those words were used when this movement was kicking off in America um, that I, I just felt like it was it was a really 
poor move PR wise to use those words and it should have been done differently. Do you think from a player's perspective it's difficult? I mean you mentioned having, having this badge given to you just before going on air but the players are expected to make political gestures, take the knee etc. Do you think there are some who probably don't want to, but feel they have to? Feel well, sort of. I, I think there's there's been some that don't. There now. has, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's now been some players that have been brave enough to to say that, that that's you know that's not for me. Yes. Um, uh, and I'm sure that uh, there are probably other players that that that, that might feel, but I, I don't know for sure. You'd have to ask the players that. Sure, that's a that's a question that you have to ask the players. Um, you know, nobody. Nobody I know what wants this country to be uh, anything but in, but inclusive towards all people. Of course, uh, you know that's that's just natural, but, decent but, human beings. But I think it's the sense of being compelled to do some to make declarations. I mean, yeah. to give an example from my world, an actor friend of mine was contacted by her agent and said, "You haven't posted in support of Black Lives Matter on your Twitter feed. You have to do that, otherwise you're not going to get cast." In anything anymore and so wow. she and so she did but she wasn't uncomfortable with even the message of the group which i think she actually rather supported it was the idea that someone had come in and said you unless do you this. do this yeah. you know yeah. i mean that's that's been a um a bit of a trait over the last couple of years of uh, of almost it's almost emotional blackmail mm. um basically is what it is what it amounts to uh, and i think the amount of coercion that has that has gone on to make people think in one direction. And that was what I was talking about with the the whole one narrative thing, um, where we're no longer we're no longer given the news. Really, we're actually just being told what to think, uh, and that's not a society that I want to live in. And that appeared seemed to me. Um, I mean, I saw the tweet that you got in trouble for retweeting about the uh, Ukraine about yeah. the, uh, um, the massacre. The tweet to me was very clearly you were making you you weren't necessarily saying that you knew what happened there. No, absolutely not. It looked like you were just saying absolutely we need not. skepticism. So what what the the point of the of the tweet was that in times of war both sides you know both sides will use propaganda. It's it's I don't think it's even a debate to be had. If somebody wants to argue that with me, I'm quite happy to sit down and show uh, and show in fact just on the way up here today uh, I saw an article in the New York Post um, about the ghost of Kiev. I don't know fighter if you saw pilot. that. Yeah. The, the fighter pilot. Well, uh, uh, the Ukrainians are now admitting that that was actually uh, not real. Um, and that was just uh, a story put out there to boost morale. Yeah. Now, that is exactly what I was talking about. And all the people that jumped on me two weeks ago, uh, I wonder if they'll actually read that story now and think, Oh, do you know what? I should I should really apologise to Matt Letizia because maybe that's what he was talking about. Right. Yeah, but I'm guessing I probably won't get a single apology from anyone who jumped on me two weeks ago. Who just because I was asking people to be sceptical about stories that come out during times of war. Yes, uh, and that is exactly what I was talking about. And now the Ukrainians are even admitting it. And so, do I feel justified a little bit? Uh, I do, but it doesn't make me happy. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it makes me sad that that reaction is still coming from uh, uh, those kind of people in the media. So just a healthy degree of scepticism about reports is what you're saying. That's what we need. Absolutely. That's, why would you? Why would you arbitrarily hand out your thought and and the truth to somebody who? How do you know they're telling? You? How do you know they're not lying? Why wouldn't you question them? And why, why are you not allowed to question them? Why are you not allowed to question the media? Because the media were 
to all intents and purposes, when the uh, Iraq crisis went and we ended up the weapons of mass destruction, the media were used to manipulate the public into believing this is what we had to do. Yes. And it turned out to be all lies. So why wouldn't you be skeptical of somebody that has already been proven to have lied to you? Yeah. So I'm a, so all I'm asking is just don't take everything as read when it just because it comes out your television or just because a reporter in a newspaper has written it down, it doesn't mean it's necessarily true. I mean, there have that's been... all I'm saying. And I'll say the same thing about myself. Don't necessarily take what I say as the truth, <laughs> but go and have a look for yourself. Yeah. Don't don't outsource your thinking to other people is what I'm trying to is what I'm trying to say. And sometimes I might have been a little bit clumsy in the way that I've gone about saying it. Sure. So, and I, I'll hold my hands up. Sometimes I'm just a bit reactionary and I'll just go, oh, well, this is what I mean. And But then sometimes when I look back at it or my wife looks back at it and goes, actually, that, that doesn't really come across as you meant it to. And I'll go, okay, yeah, yeah. But, well, sure, but that's human beings. But that, that, you know, we all make mistakes. We, yeah. But all I'm asking really at the end of the day is for people to think for themselves. But I think that makes sense. I mean, there are so many high profile examples of where the media has inadvertently or not misled people. So, I mean, for Absolutely. instance, the, um, you know, I mean, YouTube and social media sites were banning any suggestion that the virus had leaked from a lab in Wuhan. And now everyone thinks that's probably a likely theory, you know. And Hunter Biden's laptop. Let's talk about Hunter oh, yeah. Biden's laptop, which, uh, you know, was Russian disinformation. Um, and 51 people in, the, you know, in the, in the services had all said that's Russian disinformation, so it must be true. It's Russian disinformation. Well, we now know it's not Russian Russian disinformation. <laughs> and uh, the ironic thing about that is that America have just uh, appointed the head of their new Ministry of Truth, uh, and she was one of the ones that were telling everyone that Hunter Biden's laptop was just Russian information. So the person that's in charge of the disinformation unit in America is guilty of disinformation. So hang on a minute. Yeah. How are you going to trust that? How are you going to trust her to be telling you the truth when she's already been caught out in her lies? And that was a particularly egregious example because the New York Post had its account locked on, on Twitter and absolutely. anyone who tried to share the link, you couldn't even share no, the link. So absolutely. And, and it had a, a huge effect on, yeah. the, on the election in America. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was, they were tampering in the, uh, in the election process. That's what the, that's what the social media giants, the big tech giants were doing. Uh, and at some point, I think they, they, should, they should have to pay for that. So I suppose the danger with these kind of things is when you have examples like that, where there's demonstrably a case of either election interference, if we want to call it that, or, or misrepresentation through the media, is that it gives rise to people then, therefore, automatically mistrusting everything they see in the media. And exactly. I, think, I think people can go the other way. Absolutely right. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think it's important to, uh, to be able to keep clarity on things and mm -hmm. to not go, as you say, that they, they said that they said that and that wasn't right. So automatically everything else that they ever right. say is, is, is wrong. Now that's not that's not the case at all. So what I would say is to question everything individually. Yes. As opposed to go, right, they've lied once, I'm gonna not believe them the whole time. Well whereas you should go, well they've lied once, so what they're telling me there, I'll just I'm just gonna double check that. I'm just gonna have a look yeah. and just make sure, you know, uh, and just be a little bit skeptical. I'm not saying don't ever believe them because they lied once. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, all I'm saying is 
just keep an open mind on things because sometimes it's not always the case. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're saying you, that you apply critical thinking when it comes to these stories, but but don't accept uncritically conspiracy theories and those kind of things. Absolutely. You, you know, and I have seen evidence of people doing that and, and going the other way. And that's oh, of course, you know, there, there will. There's, there, we have a, a wide range of, uh, of people on this planet. Um, and you will always get people that will go to one extreme over here. Yeah. You'll get another set of people that will go to one extreme over here. And then you'll get a load of people somewhere in the middle at different levels. Um, yeah. You know, and we, we can't ever just start criticizing these people and go, oh, well, you're all like that. Or start criticizing these people and go, well, you're all like that. You're all brainwashed sheep who, who believe everything in the yeah. media. You're all conspiracy theorists over here uh, because you believe everything that has ever happened in the past is a lie yeah uh, you know somewhere in the middle we have to meet and find out where the truth is do you think there is a cost these days to honesty to being honest? oh 100 percent. yeah there's a there's a cost to having an opinion that goes against the mainstream narrative without question uh and it takes uh it takes a thick skin uh, and a very strong mentality to be able to to talk out against it and what is it about yourself that because you strike me as someone who just you, you you wouldn't be happy not being honest. You you know saying the thing that you're meant to say. You just you you want to say what what you feel. Uh, I do want to say what I feel. Um, you know it's it's just something that's in you really. It's a gut instinct, um, uh, and I just listen to I just listen to my my gut instinct at times, and that's why I like to take in both sides of the story mm. and then evaluate both sets of evidences and then go right. What makes more sense? I mean, because when it comes to the lockdown, you know, I think. Early in those when, when that when that occurred, there was a lot about the risks of the virus, obviously, and from epidemiologists and the like. But there wasn't much about the potential risks of lockdown, which you've sort of touched on. Absolutely. Yeah. And you would have thought that that would have to be factored in in any sort of well well-rounded discussion. Uh, one of the one of the things that um, strikes me as odd is that we had a pandemic plan in place. We had that. It's all in place. It's yes. all there, and. It got that plan got completely trashed and thrown out the window, and nobody has ever answered why. I mean, I, I suppose they would say it was a new virus that they, they were. No, but the plan was in place for a pandemic, and they're telling us this is, this is a pandemic. Yes. So this is our plan. But it wasn't used. But it wasn't used. It was thrown out, and we copied China instead, which you know strikes me as a little bit odd. And why has nobody ever asked that question? And the other question, which I've never heard asked in the media before, which is probably the first one that I would have asked is um, when it came to the vaccinations, mm. is that the vaccinations were produced within I don't know, nine months, was it a year, uh, you know, of, of having the sequencing. Um, nobody has ever answered the, or asked the question, how do we know what the long term effects of these vaccines are? In the, if we've developed them in the space of 12 months, how is, it, how is it possible to know what effect those vaccines are going to have on the population in five or 10 years' time? We cannot know. It's impossible for us to know. So because of that, there has to be a choice. There has to be informed consent. And we weren't given that. There was no informed consent. Nobody was made aware of the risks. All, all they were told is you've got to have these or else you can't travel. Uh, you might lose your job. Um, and 
that's not that's not informed consent. That's coercion, and that's against the law. So, was it just an instinctive thing that you just felt our freedoms are being taken away? Was that just something you felt naturally? Yeah, I, I felt like um, the stuff that was going on didn't make sense. Right. That's what that's what it felt like to me. I mean, I can say uh, the rapid development of the vaccine makes sense to me insofar as. For, for in a unique time in history, yeah, all yeah. of these major no. companies are working together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't dispute that at all. Uh, I don't dispute that at all. The bit that I the only bit that I dispute is that how can you know in a year what the long term effects are going to be in 10 years? If you haven't had a control group that you monitor for five or 10 years, it's the only way you can do it. Yeah. There's no shortcuts to that. I can understand all the other shortcuts, the funding that went into it, the companies working together, the scientists working together. I understand how that can be done quickly, but you cannot, you cannot get long-term safety data in the space of a year. It's impossible. I mean, my concern has always been the coercion element of it because I yes, think everyone should have the... I, I'm a big believer in medical science and vaccines. Yeah, I, I, I've, I just, had all my, I've had every other vaccination in my life. Yeah, my, my worry is... And the, all of a sudden, the, I would get labelled an anti-vaxxer because I was like, well, I just want to wait for some long-term safety data. And, and they go, oh, anti-vaxxer. Oh, how can I be? I've had every other one. I'm just being sensible. So that's the point, isn't it? It's, 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 it's the broader ethical implications of saying to people, if you don't have this medical treatment, you become a different class of citizen you have less Absolute. access to places. I mean, that for me, it was, always a, it was always a question of liberty. And it was always that... Yeah. Uh, I don't claim to be to have any knowledge of, of vaccinations. I'm not me, an expert at all. Um, for me, it was the, the the broader question about liberty yep. that I was concerned about. Yeah, and I think I think informed consent for me was the was the most important thing um, because it it seemed to me that that just wasn't people weren't aware mm. that there are that there were some possible. But do you think there were side effects? There was an element of all this that people were scared. You know, I remember early, in, early in the pandemic, they were deliberately scared. The, well, I mean, the, the nudge the, unit the media, has, has... The media, the nudge unit, I think we've all seen. Uh, I mean, Laura Dodsworth's book, um, uh, she did a, a State of Fear. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it was just, you know, she uh, details it all in there. Um, and I think for a government to use scare tactics on its population, uh, I think is tantamount uh, to a crime. And that's a really important point, isn't it? That if they trusted the people of this country, they would have open and honest discussions Absolutely, and, and not attempt to, and of course that's it's incontrovertible that that's that was their tactic is to scare people. Absolutely, and I think it's a very patronising view of the public Incredibly that they can't handle. They can't handle nuance. They can't handle that we don't know everything. Yeah, you know, absolutely, and absolutely, and nobody nobody knows everything. Nobody. Do you think it's? I think you just have to give people all the information that's available and let them make their own minds up. That's what that's what it's all about for me, uh, and I think you're right. I think they. Uh, they look down on the population uh, as if they're a piece of dirt on the bottom of their shoe and they can't understand the slightest bit of information that they're given, basically. And that annoys me. Do you feel that this has had or will have some kind of long-term effect on the country as a whole, on the population as a whole, on for sure. the, uh, the, I mean, way, the way we behave with each other? And Well, I think it will have um, quite a big effect on the younger generation, what, what it's done to them. Uh, you know, I think one of the most horrific things that I've witnessed over the last couple of years is the guilt that they have tried to put on our kids uh, in terms of, you know, you've you got you to put a mask on at school, otherwise you might kill your grandma. Mm. 
that is one of the most horrific things you could ever say to a child that you're guilt tripping them into you know you're going to kill your grandma if you don't do this you kill your grandma if you don't do that yeah i mean how how does any decent human being think that that is a nice thing to do yeah. and the right thing to do it's horrific it's horrible so in terms of your position now because obviously people now talk about you in relation to your views that they think see you as being very outspoken but there are all sorts of people within the footballing community who are outspoken but their views align with a kind of acceptable point of view I absolutely suppose. yes absolutely and do you think we 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 could ever reach a point where we could restore this idea that people in in any given society are going to disagree sometimes and that's healthy and that's okay and and I, i'd uh, hope so uh, it's going to take a it's going to take a lot of work i think um because i think the government are doing everything they possibly can to stop that from happening mm. um with the bills that are going through parliament at the moment um you know lots of countries looking to censor online disinformation mm. and misinformation um which i find a bit creepy yeah. um because again uh who you're going to trust with the truth no one human being knows do think, everything do you think a lot of it is well intentioned though i mean you know no. i look you no. don't no i don't think it's well intentioned at all no because i look at the the online safety bill for instance that the government wants to push through and i can see that there are problems with things online that can be harmful and and uh, and uh, you know but a lot of them are already criminal but i worry about that yep. bill because i think it will make discourse even more limited and that's their whole that's the whole point of it all so that you do not you're not able to challenge government you think that's the actual point i do indeed so where, think it's the actual you... point i think it's it's dressed up in a way to make it look like it's for your safety um but for your safety is uh pretty much been the mantra of most tyrannical regimes in history uh and so it makes me very suspicious um it's it's always dressed up as if it's for your own for your own good for your yeah. own safety it's always dressed up like that but when you look deeper into it and you you kind of look and think well hang on how can that be how can that be abused how can how can that law be abused so that oh, it might be for your own safety but also we're just going to take a bit more of your freedom away from you uh, and it is literally boiling the ethical frog and if you don't know what that is then you might want to have a look it up because I think that's what's been happening to us over the last couple of years and I think the government will take away as many of your freedoms as they possibly can um that you will let them get away with uh so I think the only way this changes is for um the people to to stand up to it and I think this country has been a little bit freer than most in their restrictions uh, around the world uh, and I think that's probably uh, been caused by the the huge demonstrations that took place um uh, and so i think that that again that's one of the things that they'll try to limit they'll try yeah. to limit your uh, ability to protest against the government um and all these things are just ways in which they have more control and more power over you i've seen elements of that the the, the new policing bill which would see police have the power to shut down a protest if it's say too noisy but of course a protest by its nature is going to be noisy is going to annoy someone and, and yeah. It, all of these, th- and it's like you say, it feels it's inch by inch. It's these gradual so it erosions. It's all it's, gradual, it's, absolutely it's, gradual and planned, and, um, and it's very clever what they do. You know, if you if you were gonna uh, if you were gonna do that, um, it's it's the best way to do it. 
because people kind of just go, oh, well, it's it's just this, they'll be all right. And then a couple of months later, they go, well, we're just going to take that away from you as well. And they go, oh, all right, it's just that, it's just that. And before you know it, you're about a mile from where you started and all of a sudden you're going, oh, I can't find back now. It's gone too far down the road. So are you, would you say you're politically homeless? I mean, is there anyone you could support any political party? Do you know what? <laughs> I've, I've never been interested uh, in politics at all. Really? Fact, I don't think I've even voted in a general election. But you sound so interested in politics from, uh, from <laughs> what we talk about. Uh, only the last couple of years have I started to really take notice of what's going on. Um, before uh, I was, yeah, I, I'm a very simple bloke. Uh, you know, I I love my family. Uh, I, I love my sport. I want to be able to do that, and I want to be able to live my life without as little as interference from my government as possible. That's, so it- that's a simple thing that I want in life, and it's only when that government then started to interfere in a way that I thought was unreasonable then i became interested in what was going on that's interesting isn't it this almost like you you're forced to become political because of the circumstances of what the government are doing yeah and i think a lot of people are feeling that way yeah now i think a lot a lot of people have opened their eyes to uh things that are going on in the world they probably never knew about before yeah the amount of corruption that there is in this in this world and in our government um, I think we've seen that with the with the PPE contracts, you know, handed out to the government ministers' mates and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, there's just there's just so much corruption that's going on, and you just don't know where it, where it ends. So, in a sense, is it quite a good thing in a way that it, it makes people more politically active? These kind of well, I, th- I think there's definitely been um, an awakening of some kind with a fair amount of people uh, as to you know just how dishonest uh, I think our government can be yeah and that's that's healthy isn't it to to we go back to this point about skepticism that's right? how so yeah that's how you have a functioning democracy surely yes you, you have to be able to hold government to account but particularly when it comes to the pandemic we didn't have any sense of opposition within parliament there, no, there, you know I, absolutely it, not and even whatever outcome people come to whatever decision there should have been those debates but i wasn't yeah and that's the lack of debate is you're exactly we're both on the same page the lack of debate and civil discourse and the the ability to be able to have a debate with somebody and not fall out with them to have be able to have different opinions with everybody Mm. and not fall out with people and talk like adults to each other you know that's why we should that's why in this in this day and age we should never be able to go we should never have to go to war why why should we be having wars i mean we're in the 21st century why the hell can we not, as responsible adults, sit down and talk about our problems and sort out our problems without having to spend billions of pounds in trying to bomb each other's cities? It's just crazy. Have you ever, have, has anyone fallen out with you on a personal level over your opinions? Um, not anybody I know. I mean, I think I've upset people that I don't know very much. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, it's inevitable. <laughs> uh, but I, don't, I haven't fallen out with any of my friends uh, over it. Most, right. most people actually don't mind you having a different opinion in real life. It just seems on social media they're the only ones that have okay. a bit of a problem with it. People I speak to in, re- in real life, no, and, and they might disagree with me. I think I've had, I've had one person, when I went to Cheltenham Races uh, uh, a few weeks back, I had one person at Cheltenham who called me an anti-vaxxer. Okay. Uh, he was outnumbered significantly by the amount of people that came up and shook my hand and said thank you very much for 
speaking out. You speak for a lot of us. Was uh, this just a stranger or was it someone you complete knew? Complete stranger. Yeah, a complete stranger right. called me an anti-vaxxer and complete strangers who come up shaking my hands um, and, and saying thank you for speaking out and putting the other side of the story across. Yeah. And those people far outnumber any criticism that I've had from people in the, in the general public. Um, so I think it's a very different world that we live in in the real world as opposed to the social media world, which is full of bots and trolls and stuff like so that. It's so it's almost like your views that the social media world is, is it's a fantasy kind of in a way. It's, it's a controlled environment. Yeah. I believe. But it does seem to spill out. My worry about it is that it kind of spills out into the behavior of people in the real world, politicians and the like, is that they, you know, all of that kind of. Yeah, they take you know, it. See, that I don't take that side of things so seriously. That's why um, the criticism that I receive on there doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, I, I, I live the majority of my time in the real world and uh, I respect the opinions of the people in the real world and actual humans that I speak to and not just faceless people behind social media accounts. Um, and the people that I meet in real life are they're good people. They respect other people's opinions and we get on. Simple as that. Well, I think that's a really great note to end on. Uh, Matt, thanks very much for joining me today. Pleasure, mate. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Matt Letissier. If you enjoyed the episode, please do like and subscribe. And make sure that you come back again next week when we're going to have another fabulous guest. See you then. Bye.